Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Just want to encourage you guys to uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. So, um, we are going to continue our series, Glory and Redemption, and just celebrating the truth that our eyes and our minds can be opened to understand the Old Testament scriptures clearly, and that we can see Jesus Christ in them, just like Jesus taught the disciples following his resurrection. A couple of quick reminders just to, to get us on the same page again, to remember that we've already learned in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that the earth was formed and filled for us. But we ourselves, we were formed for God. We were made to be in relationship to him, to be obedient to him, to walk with him. And so what we see unfolding as Genesis continues is how this relationship that we were made for gets busted up, and then all of a sudden the story is not about glory and relationship, but glory and our need for redemption. And today we're going to begin to see how redemption begins to play into the Old Testament story and history. And then as we go, we're going to begin to understand more about how God has always been about in this Old Testament history, the process of redeeming you and me for his glory. So uh, last week we saw that Adam and Eve fell because they looked at the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they said, it will taste good, it looks good, and it will make me special. And these are the same temptations that we fall prey to today. So we, didn't, we don't look back at Adam and Eve and point fingers and say, you were terrible people. If only you hadn't sinned, everything would be fine because the truth is, had they not fallen, there's a really good chance that one or all of us at some point would have chosen to disobey God. And so we fall prey to these same temptations today. And it's important for us to use scripture, to know God's word, to walk in relationship to him and to turn to Christ on a regular basis so that we can avoid the same temptation that brought about the destruction of the relationship of Adam and Eve with God. Now, at the end of what we looked at last week, verse 7, here's where we leave Adam and Eve. After having eaten the fruit and fallen to the temptation, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, if you'll remember, we'll go back a couple of weeks, and their nakedness in the garden was a clear indication of their spiritual innocence and of their perfect relationship between one another and with God. And so when they realize their nakedness and they try and hide, this is a picture of understanding their sinfulness, understanding their failure to walk in right relationship with God and with one another. And so they try and hide from God. They try and hide from one another by sewing together fig leaves and trying to cover their shame trying to cover their own sin. And, and we see this, I mean, I, I, you, you have a kid, they do something wrong, the first thing they do is try and hide it somewhere, 
right? I, mean, I remember hiding things under beds. I remember breaking things and putting them on shelves, you know, hoping my parents would not notice that something was broken. And this is what Adam and Eve are doing here in verse 7. They are understanding that they have sinned, understanding that they are in rebellion against God and trying to cover up their shame, trying to cover up their brokenness. And the best they can do is to grab some leaves and sew them together. Now, thankfully, it was fig and not poison ivy. That would have been even worse, right? But what, what a terrible thing when we all know how impermanent, how, how, how passing leaves are. They're, they're solid, they're strong for a moment, and then the next thing you know, they're dried up and blowing in the wind. And so this covering is clearly not going to serve the purpose of hiding their shame and hiding their sinfulness. Instead, we're going to see God do something a little bit later. But first, we have to understand God's glory is still shining in all of its excellence. But the relationship between God and mankind and man and woman, it has been broken and brought to death because of their rebellion against God in eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so today we are going to look in chapter 3, verses 8 through 24, at the consequences of the fall. So once again, if you've got your Bibles, hopefully they're already opened up to Genesis chapter 3, or you've opened the Bible app. Now understand, uh, Genesis is that first book of the Bible, so it's really easy. Even if you're not there yet, get there now. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24. Here is what Scripture records as the history of of the unfolding consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see in this passage, in these verses, the consequences of Adam and Eve's sinful choice beginning to be pronounced over them, and then we'll watch these consequences unfold. And we can actually see these consequences coming to pass in our own lives because we are the children of Adam and Eve. So we see once again a reminder in verse 8 that the, the relationship between God and Adam and Eve is soundly fractured. It is broken because of their sin. They, when they hear God walking in the garden, they hide from him because they know that they have sinned. No longer do they stand naked before one another and naked before God with no shame. Now they hide in shameful depravity not wanting God to see what they've done. They don't want God to understand. Now, this is, of course, an anthropomorphism of God. He does not have a body. The Mormons are not right. God the Father does not possess physical flesh, but he can, at any point, as spirit, who is omnipotent, appear to have flesh and walk and be, be heard and experienced. And so we shouldn't take this as some proof that God either has a body or that the Bible is untrue. Rather, this is a clear, Adam and Eve saw God as if he were a man, as if he were physically present, but he was not limited by his appearance. He was still almighty God and did not possess a body of flesh as the Mormons or other cults believe, but instead appeared to so that he might better relate to Adam and Eve, so they might understand because we see in scripture over and over again, when God appears in all his glory, people die. And that's not what he wanted for Adam and Eve at this point physically, though we will see that they were dead spiritually. So here's how it unfolds as God begins to, to look for Adam and Eve and they're hiding. He says, calling out to Adam, where are you? Now, do you think God knew where Adam was Yes, absolutely. This is not a question of God's limited omniscience or understanding. Instead, this is a question that is offering an opportunity for Adam. Because had Adam, at, at this moment, had he stood up and said, I'm right here, God, and we ate from that tree that you told us not to. And things have not been right since. Could you please help? This is what this question is. It's an opportunity for repentance. And so God actually continues to ask questions. Adam tells God, I'm here. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asks, who told you that you were naked? A second question. A second opportunity for Adam to say, no one, God, we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, just like you told us not to. And then we looked down and it was like, oh, no. But that's not what Adam says, is it? God asks another question. Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What could Adam do at this point? A third question asked of him. He could stand up and say, oh, yes, God, and I have not appreciated the results. Can we please talk about how to fix this? I have done wrong. I have rebelled against you. I have disobeyed your clear command. Please 
Save me from this. Three opportunities to repent. God makes three different calls for Adam to stand up, to take ownership for his rebellion and his sin. And we see what does Adam do. Well, he answers God this way. The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. Instead of saying, God, I have sinned against you. I have rebelled against you. I I have chosen to do what you said was not to be done. Would you save me? Would you rescue me? Can you make this relationship right? I do not like these consequences and this result. Instead of repentance, we see Adam blame shift. And he doesn't just blame Eve. He says, the woman, okay, so Eve, it's her fault, but you gave her to me. It's your fault, ultimately, God. Ultimately, as I look at this situation, I think you're the one who sinned against us. I think you're the one in the wrong here, God. And, and Adam, instead of repenting, begins to point his finger back at God. He points his finger at what God has blessed him with. You remember his response to Eve when God first brought them together? Back in chapter 2, he's like, oh my goodness, finally, this one, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, I'm going to call her Isha because I'm Ish, and she's like me but different, and this is so cool. And now, just what could be literally a few moments or hours later, he's saying, well, God, you gave me a bad gift. I mean, I'd like to return it, maybe. It's your fault. How could you let this happen, God? So Adam points his fingers at Eve, and he points his fingers at God, and he says, it's y'all's fault. It's yin's fault? Is that, is that, does that work? So, yeah, anyway, I don't even know. Yin's? Yeah, no, that's weird. Uh, it's all y'all's if you're southern, right? It's all y'all's fault. It ain't my fault. What's interesting is, Adam's answer reveals how his relationship with God is already broken. And his relationship to Eve has already been shattered. Because instead of naked and unashamed before one another and before God, this perfect sharing of deep, intimate connections, we see now he has turned on God and he has turned on Eve and he begins to blame them for his shortcomings. He blames them for his choices. He blames them for what they've done wrong in his life. Their relationship is clearly already broken. And Adam's answer brings us all we need to know about just what kind of tension these relationships are going to experience for thousands of years. So God moves from Adam and he begins to talk to Eve. And he says this, so the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And, and this question, actually, uh, some scholars say the way it reads is that it's almost this, what in the world were you thinking? What have you done, Eve? And Eve, if we look, he asks this question, this is another opportunity for confession and repentance. 
But what does Eve say? Well, the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's not my fault. You made that snake. It's, it's probably your fault. You're the one that made the snake, God. If you hadn't made the snake, I probably would never have eaten. And so we see Eve doesn't stand up for Adam and say, yeah, it, I did give it to him. It, it was my fault. She doesn't say to God, I chose. She doesn't even say to God, the, the serpent lied to me, but really it, it, it rested with me finally and totally. Instead, she blames the serpent, which is in effect blaming God for the sin that has occurred in her life. Here what we see happen in, in these questions that God asks of Adam and Eve. We know that a sin has been committed. We've, we've read the history ourselves. They willingly took of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they ate it in direct rebellion against God's command. And yet, God had told them, when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now we look at that and go, well, why didn't they just like drop dead? Was it, would it have been cool if it was like poisonous and this would all be over, right? No, we're not talking physical death, but God knew what kind of death awaited them. The death of their innocence, the death of their relationships, the death of their relationship with one another. And sin was committed and death happened instantly. And God walks back into the situation and he says to them, will you repent? Where are you? How did you know? Did you eat? What happened here? What have you done? And four different times God asks, asks them to repent, not directly, but indirectly, giving them opportunities to take ownership for their own sin and their own choices. He requests their repentance. And each of those four times, they reject his grace. Their answer to God from both of them is, it's actually your fault. You did this to us. Adam says, you gave me the woman. Eve says, you made the snake. God, this is your fault. And so what's left? And, and it's on the screen, only judgment. That's all that's left. The opportunity for repentance has been given, and we can play lots of what-ifs. Well, what if Adam and Eve had repented in that moment and had done what was necessary to make right their relationship with God? We could play that game, but the truth is, is they didn't. Instead, they doubled down on their sin. They blamed God. And all that's left for them, and sadly, all that's left for all of mankind, according to Scripture, is the judgment of God. So we're going to see here in the next few verses what that judgment is. First, God starts with the person, the being that has had no opportunity for repentance, no opportunity to make things right, and that is the serpent. Now, as we talked about the serpent last week, I, I think I, I told you that this is both a creature and there is a spirit within the creature inhabiting it, using it, to achieve his ends. And so we have both a physical serpent and then we have the serpent, Satan. And, and we see him called the serpent in Revelation. We see in, in other places in Scripture where he is called the crafty serpent or the deceiving serpent, Satan. And so we have both an animal who is facing judgment because it does say that the serpent, the animal himself, was crafty. But then we also have the spirit, Satan, 
who is facing judgment, the fallen angel who led a rebellion against God the Father. So his opportunity for repentance is nil, it's gone. So here's what God says to the serpent, both Satan and the crawling animal. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And so the serpent is cursed. Satan and the animal. First, we're going to see what really happens with the animal, the serpent. Serpent? Serpent. I was going to say snake, and then I changed it to serpent right in the middle, so that's why you got a serpent. The serpent's curse, it's interesting to read this, he is more cursed than all of the animals, more cursed than any livestock and more than any wild animal. Now, if the serpent is more cursed what does that imply about the rest of the animal kingdom? It too is cursed because of the fall. And so the serpent is the most cursed because of his activities, but because of the fall of mankind, because of their rebellion against God, they as the shepherds, the stewards, the caretakers of creation, their choice had a consequence for all of God's creation. For the animals, it was they were cursed. This is where C.S. Lewis, though, gets talking animals. You're familiar with that, right? That when he looks at the serpent in the garden talking, and then the, the fall happens and the curse. Well, he, go back to Narnia that was never cursed. Before there's a fall, there's no fall in Narnia. Therefore, all the animals must talk. So that's just a little bit of fun, little tidbit. Animals, we don't know if all of them talked or if it was just the serpent because of the power of Satan. Doesn't matter. They don't talk today, and if they do, seek help. So this curse, the serpent was to be cursed more than all of the rest of the animals, implying that all of the animals are cursed. And then the serpent is required, as part of its life, to crawl on its belly and eat dust. And that curse to eat dust is an expression of humility. It was created from dust. It was shaped from dust is what Genesis chapter 2 tells us. Mankind was also shaped from dust, but we alone have the breath of God breathed into us. And so the serpent will be eating dust as an expression of its humility, a reminder of its rebellion against God. So yesterday I saw a cute little garter snake in the garden. First of all, it scared me. And then second of all, I was like, oh, it's just a garter snake, it's okay. Guess what it was doing? crawling on its belly, flicking its tongue down there in the dust. Still, after all these years, the serpents of our world carry the curse from that day in the garden. And then God says this in verse 15. He's speaking to now not the serpent, the snake, but the serpent, Satan. And he says this, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now we can see that there still is this enmity, this, this dislike, if you will, between snakes and humans. 
But when we understand that God is here speaking not to the creepy crawly, but instead to the demonic force, we understand that the offspring, the children of Satan and the children of God will always be at war. They will always be struggling. But there will come a time, God says, when an offspring of the woman will strike the head of this demonic force, Satan, and kill him, destroy him, end his dominion and his deception. But the most that he will do will strike the heel of this offspring of the woman. And so what we see right here in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, the first full day or two of creation, we already see that the glory of God has been revealed in all that he created, and he wants relationship with us. But mankind has willingly rebelled and broken that relationship. And, and yet even in the midst of judgment... God declares his desire to redeem mankind. Declares that there will come a day when evil will be destroyed and new life will come for all people. And so that's what we see in, in chapter 3, verse 15, is this promise of what we find in Christ Jesus. Excuse me. And so... Just a couple of verses. This is to help us see that, that the seed of the woman, that he is Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 4.4, 4, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It's interesting. In the curse, it says that the seed of woman will be the one that comes to destroy Satan and all his works. What do we know about Jesus well, he had no physical father. He was of Mary only by the power of the Holy Spirit upon her. And so we see the son of a woman who comes and brings to pass the promise of Genesis 3.15. Now, you might ask, why didn't God just send Jesus like the next day? Because wouldn't that have been easier if all of mankind was just saved from the beginning? Paul answers that question here, too. When the time came to completion, we don't understand God's plans. We don't understand his timing. But why did Jesus come when he did? Because it was the perfect time according to God's plans. And so we watch over the, the whole of the Old Testament, his plan for redemption will unfold, and we're going to see it in places maybe you've never looked for it before. And we're going to see Christ reflected over and over and over again in the stories that some of us are very familiar with. And we're going to understand that from this day forward, God had been orchestrating the arrival of his son who would live a perfect, sinless life, die on a cross as the sacrifice and the payment for your sins and mine, he would absorb the wrath of the Father that was earned for us and, and by us and, and then would rise again on the third day so that everyone who believes on him can be saved. And that plan 
that was perfectly completed in the time of Christ begins to unfold this very day in biblical history. Now, here is um, what, what happens with Eve. And here is the curse that she receives. After this promise of redemption, God says this is going to be the case. He says to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. So God looks at Eve, and as after having given her the, the opportunity for repentance and confession, he pronounces judgment when, he re, when she rejects his grace. And here is his judgment, that she will experience great pain in bearing children. Now, it was clear here that there was to be some pain to begin. It was not always going to be the most cheery of experiences. But now, post-fall, it was going to be considerably worse. And actually, here in the scriptures, when it says that her labor would be um, about bearing children, it's believed that what God meant was not just in the actual bearing, but in the whole rearing process. That having a child from from conception to your death would become a painful experience. One that was troubled. One that was difficult. And and those of us, as we've matured and we've watched our, our children grow into adults and go out into life, we understand that parenting never really ends. And, and mothers, your pain for your children, it began that day in the hospital, but it never ends. And, and so the, the curse is one both in physical pain and childbirth, but also the pain of watching your children grow and mature and become beautiful, wonderful creatures who disappoint and fail and fall short of God's glory just like you did. Now, <clears throat> I'll come back. The, the word there, words there in the red, labor, pains, we'll come back to those in a second. But I want you to kind of just stick that in your mind for half a second. And then the second thing that's part of Eve's curse is a desire to rule her husband that would be frustrated by his rule over her. So the scripture says it this way. It says, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Some people like to soften this and say, That word desire, it means like a desire for intimacy, but he won't always be nice. No, that's not what it means. We can turn just one one chapter towards the the back of the Bible to chapter 4, and the same word is used here in Scripture, exact same word in Hebrew, when God is speaking to Cain, he says to Cain that sin is at his door, Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God says to Cain in the next chapter, using the exact same words, sin wants to own you, but you must control it. Sin wants to dictate to you what you should do and how you should behave, but you must rule over it. This curse in Chapter 3 over Eve, your desire will be for your husband. You will want to dictate and rule over him. 
but he will be given the authority over you. Now, we don't want to soften this because what this does is it helps us to understand something about our marriage struggles as we mature and, and see how God speaks to these things in the ensuing pages of Scripture. That what God is really cursing us with, men and women together in this curse toward Eve, is a difficulty in relating to one another. A difficulty in seeing eye to eye. A desire to both be in charge and have it our way. And, and you can shake your head yes or no. I don't, I don't care if you're amening or poo-pooing at this point. Because I'm human and I've lived this. And I like things my way. Sorry. I like to be in charge. And we, we have struggles and it's, it's part of the curse, this power struggle, this who's in charge, who gets to decide. It's part of what it is to be broken in our relationships toward one another. And so we need to see that these things are not abnormal, but there's also no excuse for allowing them to dictate us. Because brokenness in our marriage relationships is actually a reflection of the curse, not of the goodness of God. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. After having cursed Eve, he turns to Adam and he says to him, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. So we see that God speaks to Adam and he says, I want you to listen to me because you allowed the deception that your wife fell prey to, to lead you into sinfulness. I'm going to curse the world that you've been given dominion over. We see there in the orange, the ground is cursed because of you. So here in the fall of mankind, we've already been told in the curse of the serpent that he is the most cursed of all the animals, implying that all the animals are cursed. And we can see here clearly as well that all of the ground and the fruit of the ground is cursed. So we can look around our world and say it's beautiful and it's amazing and it's not even as perfect as God intended. It's not even what it will be when he returns. And instead, it's cursed. So the ground will be cursed. And then, then God says to Adam, you will eat from it by means, means of painful labor. Now, this is the exact same word in the Hebrew as in the curse given to Eve when God said that she would have intensified labor pains. Now, my wife warned me be very delicate about how you compare this. Because she told me a story of a pastor who used this verse to talk about how that meant that a man's life is just as hard as a woman's. And you don't know how difficult it is to work every day. All you have to do is birth a baby once, but I have to go make bread money every day. You know, and so uh, we're, <clears throat> so you, you can get, you know, it's, 
It's a similar curse, and of course we understand that there are differences, right? But both of these things, these were supposed to be blessings from God. God told Adam and Eve in chapter 1, verse 28, to go out and multiply and care for the earth. Childbearing and caring for the the plants and, and working for our food, it was supposed to be a daily blessing where, yeah, there was going to be some struggle. Yeah, it was going to cost some sweat equity, but it was always going to bring us joy. But our rebellion against God's perfect standards bought for us blessings being turned into judgments. The good things that God gave for us being turned into struggles. When we reject God's perfect ways, the result is always pain and suffering. And so the perfect way was that Eve was supposed to have child after child, and it would hurt a little, maybe like a little pincherous thing, but man, it was going to be joyful. And Adam was going to just, man, he was going to be like the supreme gardener. He was just going to walk through, and it was going to be fruit after fruit after fruit, and providing for his family was going to be a constant source of pleasure and joy. And then they rebel against God, and childbearing becomes a curse, and providing becomes a curse. The very things that were supposed to be blessings become pain and suffering. Now, what we see is God is cursing man and woman and the snake in accordance with their very rebellion against him. Here's what God goes on to curse Adam with. He says to him, it will produce the ground, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread, not literally bread in Hebrew, it just says you will eat your sustenance or your food. Using the word bread here is kind of a carryover from the thing like old speak, you know, old translations. We, it's not literally bread. It's literally, you'll eat food by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will t- return to dust. So God says to Adam, here's, here's essentially what I'm going to tell you. You're cursed. The ground is cursed. You will have pain and provision and tending the very creation that was supposed to be a blessing for you will now become pain and you will die physically. This body will give out at some point, and you will return to the dust. And like I mentioned earlier, the punishment for each of their sins, it flows from the role that they were supposed to have lived up to and that they rejected in rebelling against God. The serpent was created to submit to mankind. Man was supposed to care for and tend and shepherd the serpent, if you will. But the serpent rebelled against man, no longer submitted to the authority of mankind and led man to rebel against God. And so the serpent was cursed to submit and eat dust forever. The woman was created to be a helper, and I couldn't think of any other word than multiplier because we were called to multiply. We were told to go forth and multiply and fill the earth. 
And the very things that woman was created for, to undergird Adam, to complete him, to be his opposite equal, she rejected in rebellion, and then those things were cursed. She becomes not his helper, but his enemy, battling. And not a multiplier with joy, but a multiplier in pain. Man was created to tend the world and to subdue it under his loving and generous leadership. And now he's told, you're going to struggle to lead your family. And it's going to be nothing but sweat and toil and pain for you to tend this creation you've been given. And so these things that they were made for, that they rebelled against, now their curses are in accordance with their rebellion. These four relationships in Genesis 1 through 3, God and creation. God's relationship with creation remains because God is glorious. God is perfect. God is holy. He's still created with an intent and he still longs to see his plans come to pass. God and man, this relationship is broken, not on God's end, but on man's end, because mankind has now rebelled against God and rejected his authority. We see the relationship between man and woman is broken. Now instead of helpers and teammates, we're at enmity and we're fighting for control. And the, the, the relationship between man and creation, it's snapped. The animals are cursed. The ground is cursed. The plants are only going to come about when toil and pain is involved. And so Genesis chapter 3 brings us to this place where nothing is as it should have been. The relationships are broken. Mankind has fallen into sinfulness. Creation has fallen into just a shadow of its former self. And the relationship between man and wife has become not a joy, but a battle. Romans chapter 5, in verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Adam and Eve, in their rebellion and in their curses, set the stage for who we are, where we start off in life before we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. How the rest of the world behaves is their own choices, but Adam and Eve set the stage for this. They are the ones that brought to us death and sin. And we call this the, the sin nature, the fallenness of mankind, original sin. We are not in a place that's good when we begin. Instead, we must submit to the redemption bought for us by Christ Jesus upon the cross. Now, here's a little bit more grace that shines through as we continue on in verses 20 and following. First, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Adam was actually very hopeful. Even after all of this cursing, even after all of this bad stuff going down, he looks at Eve and says, 
Actually, he looks at woman and says, I'm going to call you Eve. Because you're the mother of all the living. I mean, nobody else is alive yet. But you will be the mother of all the living. It's this hopeful declaration that God's promise that there will be children and there will be a child that will save them is true. And so he says over his wife, his woman, you're Eve. You are the mother of all the living. From you will come our hope. From you will come our salvation. Now, it wasn't actually Eve, but it was from Eve. And then it says this in verse 21. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. He took the fig leaves that weren't doing the job, that didn't cover their shame, that wouldn't last, and he made for them clothing from skins. Now, the question that must be asked is, where do animal skins come from? Animals. Yes, it, it's... Um, it, it's not nearly as profound as it seemed there for a second. Animal skins come from animals. And of course, God could have just spoken and there were skins in existence. We, we, we know that. But really, this is a picture of God taking and sacrificing animals that he might cover the sin and shame of Adam and Eve. And so even in this act, we see the grace of God. We see God's desire to redeem his glorious creation. He will sacrifice the life of the innocent in order to cover the sin and shame of those who had rebelled. Another beautiful, beautiful foreshadowing of another innocent who would come, whose life would be given to clothe us in righteousness and cover our shame and remove our guilt and sin. And that's really what, what this is. It's a covering for sin and shame that looks forward to the covering and the redemption that will come through Jesus. And then in verse 22, the Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. Some commentators are really weird. Some, some scholars, they're really weird. They, they look at this and say, God is looking at mankind and saying, Ooh, he might become like me. i got to put him under my thumb. It's not what God is saying here. What God is doing is he is looking at Adam and Eve and saying they are now morally bankrupt beings who have chosen rebellion, and I cannot allow them to live forever physically in this broken condition. If we read ahead in the, the Bible's story... There comes a day where everyone will be resurrected and will have an eternal physical body, some for damnation and some for glory. Had Adam and Eve become immortal at this point, it would have been a literal hell as they were destined to live forever in their broken state. But what happens in death is that it gives opportunity for time to pass and God to redeem his faithful through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So even being cast out of the garden and kept from the tree of life is an act of grace on God's part. 
because he did not want Adam and Eve to be locked into their sinful, physical state for eternity. What's cool is we believe Adam and Eve, because they faithfully worshipped and obeyed God the remainder of their life, looking ahead to the Christ that would come, we believe that we'll see them in eternity. Isn't that cool? They really screwed up, and yet they were not beyond redemption because they were faithful, and they looked ahead to a Savior that would redeem them. And so even God casting Adam and Eve out of the garden and putting a cherubim and a flaming, whirling sword east of the garden, which looks like an act of judgment, is actually an act of mercy that makes redemption possible for Adam and Eve and all who would come. And so this is, this is the glory. This is the redemption. This is us seeing God in all his fullness, standing up against unrighteousness, standing up and condemning and judging sinfulness and rebellion. And yet, even in that, in the midst of judgment, he makes a way for redemption. He makes a way for restoration. He sets the stage for renewal. And even in these moments of judgment, he is looking ahead to the coming of his son who would redeem all those who would believe on him in faith. So a couple of points of application. Now that we've kind of gone through the story, some things to take home for us. Our sin turns God's beautiful design from blessing to pain and curse. The very things that God would desire to be a blessing in your life, when you do not live them out according to the standards that he has given you, will become painful and a curse. And we see this happen over and over again. Our sexuality was given to us. It's a beautiful gift. Meant for procreation and enjoyment. Meant to be exercised within the confines of marriage. And yet, when we partake of it outside of those standards, what does it become for us? Pain and a curse. We can look, food is a wonderful thing. Amen. <laughs> food is wonderful. It was provided for us, given to us that we might consume and live. And you know what? It doesn't have to taste good, but it does. God is so good for us. What a blessing food is. And then I eat too much. And then I, I step beyond the bounds of, of necessity into gluttony and selfishness and into greed. And the very thing that is a blessing becomes pain and a curse. And, and many of us, we, we experience that. You know, the knees don't work like they should because I'm carrying a couple extra pounds. Things give out. Life's not... You get the picture, though. And, and I, wanna, I want you to carry it out into your everyday life. God has intended every aspect of this life to be beautiful and a blessing to us. But when we rebel and decide that we're in charge and try to enjoy those blessings according to our own terms, like Adam and Eve did, 
The very thing that was meant to be a blessing becomes a pain and a curse. And then a second one, for those of you who are married, I want to tell you just straight up, your marriage can, I, can do one of two things. And as we understand what happened here in this curse, your marriage can either daily declare the fall and be one where you are constantly fighting against one another. Where wives, you are trying to get your own way. Husbands, you are trying to have your rule, your authority. And it ends up with arguing, and it ends up with fighting, and it ends up with everybody knowing that your marriage isn't what it should be. From the kids in the house to the neighbors through the wall, your marriage is declaring the brokenness of mankind. But if you're both believers, especially if you're both believers, your marriage is supposed to declare something else. It should proclaim the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, 22 through 33. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, Submit therefore to one another, wives to your husbands, as to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so we see that the fall leads us to marriages that are broken and fighting and full of enmity and trying to one-up one another and have the authority. But salvation brings us to a point where we willingly submit to one another. Wives, following after your husband's spiritual leadership. Husbands, giving up your own desires and doing things in your life to bless your wife and mature her spiritually. That's what marriage is in Christ. And so, if you are a married believer, does your marriage declare the fall or does it proclaim the gospel? Now, if you need help, you need to talk to a mentoring couple, you need to, to seek out some, some resources to help make peace and gospel proclamation a part of your marriage. I just want you to know I'm available, Shelly. We've got others in the church who would be happy to sit down, go out to dinner and say, hey, what's up? And why is it like that? And how can you look more like the gospel in your marriage? So, this story of Adam and Eve, this truth, this history, we can see in it why we are, how we are, why the world is like it is, and yet also we see the hope that God is already establishing, the, the, the way he's already setting the stage for our redemption, even as he's declaring punishment and the curse over Adam and Eve. As our worship team comes up, I just want to encourage you to take a moment, and I want you to, get to, to, to think about the things that are blessings in your life, that you have tried to do your own way and have become a curse and to submit those things back to the goodness of God. If you're in a marriage that's struggling to proclaim the gospel but is instead declaring the fallen nature of mankind, pray, ask God, what's my next step? For strength to be able to step out and seek help, to seek counseling or a, a loving Christian couple to mentor you. But don't allow yourself to just be 
another creature subject to the fall. Instead, submit yourself fully to the love and the goodness of Jesus Christ and allow yourself to be redeemed from these curses that we see in Genesis chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your love. We thank you for this, this word that was given to us. We pray that we would be able to see in it our own broken and fallen selves, but also know that we can be redeemed through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and that we no longer have to be at odds. We no longer have to allow what is blessing to become cursed because we taint it. But instead, when we submit our lives to your good and perfect plans, our relationships can declare the gospel and we can begin to genuinely celebrate and enjoy the blessings that you've put into our lives. That the simple things like breathing, eating, and loving
Voter guide for the primary. So if you are interested in a voter guide for the primary, they're on the back seat. 